This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Monster Power Consistency. Normalized Necromancy. And the third Powell's Raid. part where we talk about murder. Right. Murder of Crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of Crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous, Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no good we get up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash murder Ken and Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> Bye. Murder of crows. <laughs> and get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the feel of shag carpeting under our feet, and the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us that despite... The Peter Frampton's Beneficent Gaze, we have entered a still somewhat horror-themed segment of the Gaming Hut. And in the Gaming Hut, uh, we have so much fun with horror that it can't be constrained merely to Halloween, so consider this a little excuse to dip back into that Halloween stash of leftover candy, uh, fill up both cheeks, and listen to Robin expatiate on monster construction theory. So uh, it's monsters, but it's theory. So that that's sort of our our Novembering of this of this topic. Uh, Robin, what do you say to the theory that monsters should be consistent, or it's not fair? So the uh, question, I guess, is uh, first of all, if you're limiting it to the horror genre, which I guess we just have, whether the monster has to have consistent abilities or whether it is able to operate by a sort of uh, a dream logic where it's okay if just suddenly it pulls an unexpected ability out of its uh, repertoire of different horrible things it can do. And uh, the question as to many of the dichotomies that we uh, pose here in the Gaming Hut is it depends. Because uh, if it was a yes or no question... <laughs> it would be a short segment. It would be a short segment. We'd have 14 minutes of dead air. We don't want that. I guess there's the occasional time that it's a yes or no segment, but everyone else does it wrong, and we have to explain it to them patiently and kindly. But that happens more rarely than you would think. Yeah, so that would be more for a lightning round, probably. Yeah. So, 
what does it depend on? You, you might ask humble listener. And what it depends on is the extent to which the monster's ability intersect with an investigative plot line. So, for example, I'm working on Adventures Now for uh, Gumshoe One-to-One, and in uh, at least two of the cases so far, I did want to set out in a sort of a, uh, not a, a sidebar section, but a, a preparatory section for the GM, exactly what the monstrous adversaries can and can't do in this particular version of them. So uh, let's say that we're uh, dealing with uh, Loigor, which we're not, but if I was doing a, Lo- a Loigor story, uh, and uh, there's also the idea, especially in Trail of Cthulhu, uh, can that where you uh, create different variations of the creatures, and the one that you might meet in any given adventure is not necessarily set in stone by the rulebook, but you get to pick. And we're not talking about uh, that, but within the course of one scenario, should the creature just have a set particular set of things it can do? And part of that is about story logic, right? If the story depends on them having one set of abilities, you have to set that out for the GM because if they, uh, as they improvise, as they almost certainly will, they uh, need to know what the creature can do so that they don't have it do something that then makes the mystery not make sense because that would be an unpleasant surprise to get to the end of the session and realize that you've accidentally uh, blown the uh, logic of the mystery by uh, improvising a new ability for the creature, for example. Right, yeah. If, if all the clues uh, sort of pointed to the fact that the Loigor uh, could not affect people through silver or through lead or something, and that's like, okay, all right, the little part of this guy that was holding the spoon wasn't um, uh, desiccated and covered with tumors. So, oh, no, that guy was standing in front of a mirror, and that's why he only lost the use of his legs and spine. And so it's like, okay, I got it. Silver has kind of got a thing here going on. And then they get to the, you know, Loigor, and they're hiding there behind the silver cabinet, and it shoots them anyway. That sort of spoils the sense of having investigated your way to the heart of the mystery, right? And, and might make it not make sense, right? That if you, if the, if the ending of the mystery turns right, yeah. on their, uh, you know, the whole reason... They didn't go down into the bank vault to kidnap the clerk right away, but had to wait was that the clerk had his silverware collection down there. You then, if you mm-hmm. need to figure that out in order to figure out that it's uh, Loigor and that uh, uh, maybe you might want to have silverware. If you have another scene that you improvise where accidentally they're just uh, rummaging through a silverware drawer, all of a sudden that thing you wanted them to figure out doesn't, doesn't make sense. So it's not just that it, Uh, cheats you, Mm -hmm. but that it screws up the mystery completely in that they can't now find the fact that they need to even get to the ending. Because uh, I guess a lot of the times, uh, this is one of those things where players only notice it if it's missing. And uh, maybe uh, nine times out of ten or more, if you sort of fudge your monster abilities, but the players never notice, that's fine. But you don't know what they're going to notice and don't know what could go awry if you don't sort of set out uh, abilities for themselves. Now, the downside of this is it does seem kind of mechanistic in what should be sort of an illogical um, universe to confine the creatures to particular um, abilities, and that probably varies from sort of horror subgenre to horror subgenre. And if it's not relevant to the plot, then you can sort of establish, well, this this is a creature that defies the normal boundaries of reality. And then you've just got a, a blank check to have it sprout a 
tentacle or a venom sack or, or what have you whenever you want it to. And, that, and that's one of the things about Lovecraftian sorts of monsters. I mean, the Loigor is kind of an odd example for you to have picked, or a great one, possibly, because Colin Wilson gives them so many powers just in that one uh, novella that it's almost impossible to come up with a thing Loigor can do that they can't actually do already. Um, it's not like if you have a deep one that suddenly has the ability to teleport, right? You're like, I'm pretty sure deep ones couldn't teleport. They would have teleported to catch Olmstead. Right. And then you have to explain, no, this deep one has a teleporting gem or he's a master uh, hyperspace magician like Kaziah Mason was, or you sort of build more explanation into the story. And maybe in a trail of Cthulhu type scenario, you give the characters a reason to look back and say, oh, that's why that lair was covered with all those circles. He was building a deep one version of the gate with circles instead of angles. I see what's going on there because he doesn't fear the Hounds of Tyndalos for some reason or whatever, right? And so you you have uh, foreshadowing that can show that when the Deep One uses this unexpected power, there is an explanation for it. But with a monster like a Shoggoth or a Loigor that are sort of these paranatural entities that are deliberately designed to be protean monsters – yeah, they sh they can get new powers all the time, and the way that you tracked them down or, or figured them out was not so much, oh, I it, it never killed a puppy, it must have been a Shoggoth. No, you figured it out because there was an Antarctic expedition involved somewhere, or, there, or everything was crushed in a unique and different terrible way or something. And so the deduction that gets you to it's a Shoggoth, or where the Shoggoth is, doesn't necessarily restrict the amount of powers that the GM can throw at you. Right. And often it's a matter of having, there's some other plot point or some other clue that leads to a restriction on this uh, creature's behavior. So that, you know, if it only, well, we've already used the silver, you know, if it's, it's afraid of a silver and that's why it does something. And that's why the silver being stolen in, in this particular scene matters that you don't want to then invalidate it. So if you've set out to have a protein monster that can, do virtually anything or can gain new powers along the way, the way to do that in an investigative scenario is there's one negative point, which is don't hinge the plot on something that restricts it. Um, and uh, the other thing is to uh, give the player an opportunity to discover through their character how the creature works, which either is a set of limited abilities like the like a deep one or a ghoul for example or even not just abilities but habits right it's like if you establish that the ghouls go don't go out in the daytime uh you then better make sure that you don't have a plot point that depends on their sneaking out at noon and grabbing somebody mm -hmm. but either way you have to have at some point well you don't have to have but i think it is more satisfying if the players have a way of discovering that and it may be just through, you know, deduction. It's like, well, all of these attacks occur at night. I guess we can assume that uh, ghouls either can't come out at night or at least have a strong aversion to coming out at night. So or let's go and investigate yeah. this place in the daytime. Yeah. Um, and so that, again, is sort of the, the setup and payoff nature that is so crucial to an investigative scenario. Um, that matters less uh, because not all horror scenarios are investigative scenarios. Uh, if... It's just sort of a, you know, a get through the catacombs before the ghouls eat you. Uh, that may or may not be something where you want to set up exactly how your ghouls behave and what their uh, hard or soft limitations are. You might just, uh, you know, you might discover midway through that they can chase you into the sunlight. They just don't like to. And that can be a cool uh, turn. Uh, although I suppose even there, that's something that you as GM have 
predetermine, although I guess if you're improvising, you could decide that it's cool and think for a moment, does this mess up anything up? And if you decide no, then you would go with it. Yeah, I think that part of the question of, you know, monster abilities being consistent comes sort of from that old D&D DNA that we have, where if you were fighting a dragon that shot electricity, that by God was a blue dragon. And we know how to beat them. And that's fair. And we know that you can kill a Rakshasa with a sacred crossbow bolt. And we know that you can stop a flump by whatever anti-flump thing it is you use. And there's that sort of rewarded system mastery that we've talked about, about learning all the monsters and their special disabilities and their special abilities so that you can sort of diagnostically as a player investigate the way out of this 10 by 10 room. Yes, there's a feeling that it's it's you're cheating if you invalidate all the knowledge I bothered to accumulate. Right. And I think that the question there comes from the question of what is the scenario intended to accomplish? Because we say horror scenario, trippingly off our tongue, but a horror scenario can be defined by its intent in the sense of does it intend to terrify or at least implicitly terrify the players or does it uh, merely count as a horror scenario because you're fighting vampires and otherwise it's indistinguishable tonally from you're fighting Nazis. They're just really dangerous Nazis who don't die real fast. And so I think that if the goal is tactics or even to a lesser extent adventure, and I think you can draw a line from tactics to pure uh, emotion of, of the goal of your scenario and wherever you are along that is how, uncool it is to change your monster ability. So if it's a tactical game, if it's meant to be, I've got my guys and they have this set of powers and they have to get through the dungeon tactically and they have to get as much gold as they can and not die as much as they can, then if you face them with a vampire that in addition to level drain also has laser vision, they're going to be steamed. Um, unless you explain, no, he's got a ring of laser vision. That's one of his magic items. But as you move farther and farther down into pure emotion, the notion that you're facing a vampire that can also uh, destroy you physically with his eyes, as well as mesmerize you and destroy you uh, psychically or, or solely spiritually with his eyes, um, then that becomes kind of cool and weird and a, and a neat way to evoke yet more different kinds of horror from this from this mesmeric vampire. And so I think that you want to look at your intent and your player's expected intent. And if they're not on the same beam already, drop as many clues as you can. And I'm not saying in-game clues necessarily. I'm saying tonal clues during the running of the game that says, this is going to be a little more horrifying than you maybe expected coming in. That you fight like a small, easily stopped monster, but he does all kinds of weird crap that that monster can't normally do. And it's like, wow, if the if the giant centipedes are that weird... Maybe everything in this dungeon is weird. And and if they're playing something like Lamentations of the Flame Princess, they're expecting it to go like that anyway. Even if it's got the tactical skin on it, the fact that the world makes no utter sense is part of the pull of that specific game. So the social contract may be, you know, agreed on when you opened the box of Lamentations of the Flame Princess or Trail of Cthulhu that you know you're getting a certain kind of experience. But if you opened the box of Traveler and you're facing, you know, some sort of uh, xenomorphic alien being, then you need to sort of provide them with a signpost that this is actually alien, not aliens, and it's a horror story, not an adventure story. You're mentioning vampires, and I have no idea why you're thinking of vampires. So yeah, you know, that's um, a thing. Brings up another uh, interesting thing is that in certain creatures, the uh, players expect, not necessarily in, in an F20 game where there's the idea that there's you know, one canonical version of this creature and your system knowledge pays it off. But in any other genre or, or 
art sort of game, there's the expectation that there's so many different variants of the vampire that the first thing you need to do is figure out what the rules are for this particular vampire. And there's a few other creatures for whom that sort of uh, pertains, like the werewolf, you know, does this werewolf, can he change at will? Does he only change in the moonlight? Uh, you know, is he a wolf man or is he a wolf? You know, that there's... Uh, so there's those aspects too, but the the granddaddy of all of those is the vampire because there's so many different versions, and so it's like, does garlic affect him? Does the cross? Does he? Can he cross water? Do you have to invite him in a house? There's so much folklore to invoke, and part of the fun of a vampire thing can be figuring out, uh, you know, what are the rules that govern this vampire, and then using that to defeat them. So in a way, that's sort of like the characters are acquiring system mastery. They're doing the investigation required to create their own reliable entry in their personal monster manual and then applying it to the situation. And so that can be a lot of fun as well. Whereas, you know, other creature types, you don't necessarily think of them as having a, a particular weakness or set of rules that govern their behavior. You're not going to do that with an ogre uh, necessarily. But uh, another sort of standard investigative adventure in the horror genre is the famously the haunted house genre, right? Where the ghost, maybe they can do anything. You never know with a ghost. Ghosts can possess you and they can be poltergeisty and they can, you know, uh, attack you with a, with ectoplasm or they can throw, uh, knives or they can make the room, you know, crush you or, or do all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. Ghosts are unknowable. And I think everyone knows going in again, barring F20 where they have a, a stat sheet, um, what that ghosts are, are bad news and can mess you up and have a grab bag full of different powers. And you're never right. going to go levitation. That's, what? that's not a thing a ghost can do to me. You know, it's that's, oh, whatever he can do. He's a ghost. He's a ghost. But you always know that there, uh, if you're in a haunted house scenario, the assumption is there is some key to unlocking the ghost's secret, and that once you've unlocked it, you can either, you know, say, oh, I've solved your long-sought business uh, on Earth, and now you can go into the gentle light, or you can, uh, you know, Jennifer Love Hewitt them into, into paradise by understanding their emotional trauma, or you can just defeat them by finding their focus item and burning it in blue flame, right? Uh, whatever it is, though, there's some key to the ghost's activity or behavior or nature that in a haunted house scenario, and I'm, and this is not always the case in haunted house movies because a lot of haunted house movies are about existential terror of property ownership. And, um, but in a, but in a scenario, there's usually a, a, a answer to be had somewhere in that haunting. And maybe you have to get out of the house and find it out in the old, uh, you know, county records building and then go back into the house and fix it. But there's always, a moment where you can turn the tables on the ghost and now you decide if it lives or dies or goes to heaven or goes to hell. And that uh, brings to mind the, the brilliant uh, second act turn at the end of the American uh, remake of the ring, uh, which turns right. that whole uh, idea on, on its head. But uh, yeah, so there you have, you still have something consistent about a creature that defies human logic. It just isn't its abilities. It's the, you know, how you get rid of him. So I guess, you know, in a way, finding the document in the basement that explains uh, how the lynching took place and who did it is the equivalent of finding, of knowing that you need to uh, put a wooden stake through uh, uh, Dracula and it has to be, you know, a mountain ash stake instead of, uh, you know, just any old ordinary hunk of wood. 
Right, instead of just going down to Home Depot and getting a steak. So, uh, I think one of the things that we need uh, to be consistent here in the podcast is to move between segments when we finish answering a uh, question. And so, let's uh, do just that and move to another segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrain website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. At Mark Address asks Ken and Robin to riff a society with normalized necromancy, such as donating a body after death for repetitive heavy work, etc. And I think that uh, At Mark Address has perhaps opened a larger box of toys than he knows, because necromancy is not merely about uh, setting your zombie body to work. It's also about raising the influential and rich dead. And one of the few satisfactions of not being influential and rich is knowing that the influential and rich will eventually die. <laughs> uh, and so you have to sort of deal with a, with, I mean, just to begin with, just to begin with the fact that, you know, we will have Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton with us for all time in this society should terrify any rational actor within it, I would think. Yeah. So, so let's lay <laughs> down some, some ground rules and narrow this a bit and say that we're talking about reanimation. Uh, and we're talking about uh, reanimation of the corpse, but the spirit and identity of the uh, person is not present, uh, right. which I think is implied 
uh, by the question. If it's it's replied by the ex- by the example, certainly. Yes. Now, are we also able to communicate with the dead at all, right? Can we go uh, the other kind of necromancy where you uh, summon up their ghost or you talk to them in the Ouija board and it's like, should I vote for this treaty? Yes, no, Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan says, no, it's awful. And you're like, yay, we have the ghost of Ronald Reagan telling us what to do. I, I'm going to suggest that you can yeah. because it's a necessary element of one of the two big cultural changes that's necessary to make this setting work but that it is not necromancy. It's a different thing. Because one of the things, two things you'd have to eliminate to have widespread use of uh, reanimated corpses as just a regular thing in your society and not a source of of horror is (laughs) the decoupling of your sentimental feelings toward your family members and what happens to their body after they die, which, of course, every single culture, even possibly predating Homo sapiens, has. Right. And so... If you know that that corpse that's going to be reanimated by your friendly neighborhood necromancer is no longer your uncle uh, Steve, that it is, uh, in fact, you know, this is just another thing and we're not sentimental about that. You have to be certain it has to be provable, uh, verifiable that the that uh, Uncle Steve is in heaven and he's totally happy with you renting out his body for yard work. In, indeed, yes. It's, it's part of... Uh, what Uncle Steve has bequeathed to you, and he may want to make certain that uh, you get a good price for it. And uh, there may even be a sort of uh, vanity around the uh, question of how Uncle Steve's corpse is, is adorned. Uh, but Uncle Steve is cool with that, and you know that Uncle Steve is, is cool with that. Yeah, Uncle Steve is like, he doesn't mind if you send him out to do yard work, but he's always got to wear his Detroit Lions jersey so that everyone knows that Uncle Steve is for the Detroit Lions live or die. Right. right. And and there may even be sort of class distinctions, right? Then Uncle Steve, you know, if he's from a high caste, he doesn't want doesn't want his corpse working in an abattoir because that's still gross. That still revolts us. Yeah. He, he wants, you know, perhaps a nice uh, job uh, taking tolls on the bridge or something that might right. be better for Uncle Steve's. Uh, and, he does, and he doesn't want to go anywhere that might cause his corpse to start rotting. So he doesn't want to go into a, a nuclear power plant and do anything that would start his course, his corpse being radiated and therefore disintegrate the bonds that are keeping Uncle Steve from uh, decaying normally, right? One right. assumes that we don't have shambling, rot- rotting body part zombies out. It's it's just proper sort of almost golem uh, zombies wandering yes. around because otherwise it's a public health menace is what it is. Right. And in fact, that's the other big cultural difference is that corpses can't evoke disgust in this society or at least reanimated corpses can't. Or if um, they do, you're sort of seen as a weird old fuddy-duddy like the Amish, right? Right. Because I think there have to be people who are disgusted by it or else you aren't really getting the sort of frisson of this society. And it just becomes like, well, what if you had robots that look just like people? Well, all right, fine. Right. Well, yeah. I think you need disapproval. But mm-hmm. the what the uh, innate disgust mechanism that we have uh, toward uh, corpses, which is a survival mechanism mm-hmm. uh, that because you can get all kinds of, you know, even... Even a few hours after Uncle Steve dies, unless the necromancer comes along and, and seals them all up and vacuum packs him, uh, you know, any corpse becomes uh, dangerous, as you suggested, a, a health hazard. So there has to be something about the reanimation magic that removes that from most people's consciousness. And it's just, uh, you know, some people are disgusted by them, but it's a weird phobia as far as most people are, are right. concerned. It's like, it's like being scared of, of rats or clowns. It happens, but no one's going to get rid of either one. Right. And so, uh, you know, there are households where it's like, well, we, we don't let them in the in the house. We keep them out in the yard because uh, Aunt Eunice doesn't trust them. She's messed up by it. 
Right. Yeah. Now, so this, this begins sort of our way down, right? Because a lot of the question about reanimating dead people, a lot of it is going to be about freshness, right? If, if Uncle Steve has died in, you know, Iran or somewhere and they, because he wasn't Muslim, they just left his body out for a while and they had to arrange for FedEx to ship him back and it was a big deal. And by the time he gets back, he's been dead a month. He's not in proper Uncle Steve condition. Even, even the most, um, uh, a uh, drunken uh, turnpike tr- traveler will not want to take uh, toll booth tickets from this guy. Uh, then what do you do, right? Is well, there's there probably a- heightened disgust ar- around right, that, yeah. right? But th- this is where all of our uh, the disgust our society used to have before necromancy came along is channeled into, oh, no, this has not been sealed. And there's probably, uh, you know, you want to cremate him right away. You don't want them to mail Uncle Steve to you. Please cremate him there. If you can't give him one shape, we don't want him. It's, it's shameful. It's financial hardship for us. We're not going to get uh, the uh, the purchase price from uh, from him, or possibly uh, possibly it's a rent system, right? Where you uh, you know it's like a Jane Austen world where it's like uh, instead of having oh well he has five hundred pounds a year, it's like oh well he has uh, four hundred uh, reanimated workers, or and I don't know what the you need a term that wasn't uh, associated with uh, uh, zombies and horror, or you know it's. Uh, you could just uh, call them morts or something. Yeah. Right. It's 500 morts. It's 500 morts. And, uh, and so, uh, you, uh, if you lose a family member in a way where they can't be returned as a mort, that's a, that's a big blow to you probably. Um, and so there'd be a big taboo around that. And that'd probably be, you know, one of the worst crimes that you can be- commit in this society is killing somebody in a way that prevents their corpse from being reanimated. So perhaps there are, uh, there's a particular poison or uh, you just, you know, or you just kill somebody and leave them down in your basement for a couple of months. And then, you... or if you kill them with um, uh, like a flamethrower or something. And so it, it can't be reanimated because it's all physically torn up. Right. And so that's the source of horror is injury that cannot be uh, reversed by the uh, friendly neighborhood necromancer. Or, and it, well, I mean, he just does the raising the, yeah. the injury reversal is still your good old funeral director, the cosmetic surgeon, that guy. Right. But there's a, you know, there's a certain point at which, this uh, mutilation goes beyond anything that you can use to have a right. non-disgusting yeah. mort. The old, the old closed casket. Right. Except, yeah, in this case. Except it's, but, it's but a again, I mean, the it's non, shameful. I mean, the disgusting morts can still do work, right? They're just disgusting, and they're not necessarily that contagious. You know, they've got an open, you know, hole in them, and maybe flies would land and, and lay eggs there, but it's not, you know, it's not going to rot anymore. And those are the morts that get sent off to the third world, to work in really terrible uh, factories to build iPads, right? And those guys, and and sew up Nike sneakers because no one cares, right? It's like, yeah, right. we got a bunch of morts, and and we had a, a big chemical fire, and a lot of people got really badly banged up, including heroic first responders. But they're all in heaven, and we just sent their bodies to El Salvador to you know um, pack coffee. Right, but probably or something. still a, a sense of shame attaches to it, right? Is that if Uncle Steve uh, was badly burned to death and is not usable as a mort here in the first world? You just want to say, oh, well, of course, we had him cremated. Because yeah, if, right. if you if someone comes back from Thailand and says, I'm pretty sure I saw your Uncle Steve working a rice paddy with his jaw hanging off. You don't want mm-hmm. that. That's, uh, that's incredibly that's the shameful. Worst thing. Yeah. One of the things that is going to happen, though, a lot in this society is that you're going to have uh, identity theft just takes on a whole new meaning, right? What you do is you sneak into, you know, the the rich guy's house or whoever it is that you want to identity thief, 
and you shoot him up with some instantaneous undetectable poison, you've got a tame, unlicensed necromancer handy to do the real quick bibbidi bobbidi boo and turn them into a mort. And their spirit is sure they're off in, in heaven or, or the happy hunting grounds or wherever it is they go. But as long as no one knows they're dead, they're not asking, right? And so you send the mort of this rich uh, person out into the world to sign checks and make stock deals and do all kinds of shenanigans, maybe even vote your way in Congress, whatever it is. And you've, as long as they're secret morts and no one knows they're dead, then you've got like this creepy leverage on them behind the scenes because they're your mort, right? The, the necromancer gave you the, the, the key or the contract or the code or whatever it is that lets you tell them what to do and not other people. Right. And so one thing that law enforcement does in this world is they are uh, trying to track down and identify the uh, unacknowledged morts. Cause of course that has to be a huge crime. Yeah. Uh, so if you're uh, leaving uh, uncle Steve uh, in place so that he can vote in parliament, you want to make sure that uh, there's probably, you know, High-profile situations like that, there are probably scanners at the door to make sure that uh, to make sure that all of our parliamentarians are living and are not controlled by someone else. We might uh, make sure that they go through this particular door and an alarm will go off. Another way to do that, though, would just be. I don't. To say, I don't like the idea of having an alarm that goes off. I think you have to like suspect that they're dead and ask their ghost, or their ghost maybe uh, goes around and haunts uh, the world as a way of saying, ah, oh, my mortis is, 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 I'm dead and people aren't talking to me. And that's your, and that gives you your sort of uh ghost whisperer type Although moment. If you're, where if it's you're like, giving morts enough consciousness in order to vote in parliament, you're bringing in a whole slavery aspect, right? Cause they're, they're yeah. still people and they've just, so I, I think we probably want to, I would, if I were doing this setting, I would backtrack on that and have uh, morts just clearly, they're now just instruments. That they don't I think you may be identity. overstating how uh, much intelligence or in, or um, uh, animating spirit you need to, to, vote, to in vote in Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure that in Canada, everything is done beautifully and peacefully by two or three men in a donut shop. But in America, a lot of the work is done by congressional staff. And as long as a congressman is sort of physically present to punch a button or not punch a button. I live in Illinois. I am sure that we have dead congressmen right now. Uh, even without more technology. If, if we have the, the <laughs> conceit that uh, if the way of testing to see if someone is a mort is you ask them a question and if they just, if their jaw just slackly drops, if that's the mm -hmm. mort test where they're actually still, you know, uh, completely unintelligent, but animate, uh, I'm, I, I would be happier with that because that is a right. fun uh, sort of uh, plot device. Whereas, uh, you know, that the idea is that you, want to have it normalized reanimation rather than I think probably a, a whole slave cast, which was a, a different thing that I think you would want to make. Uh, it sort of robs focus from all of these other aspects and, and becomes another sort of story when you do that. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a whole world. There's going to be a lot of different kinds of stories going on in it. And I think that this threat, uh, even if it's, even if it's very hard to do, right, you have to have a, a big budget to get a, an unlicensed necromancer. Right. You have to have a big budget to get this kind of poison that, that leaves you exactly looking alive, whatever it is. Um, and so it's, it maybe it's not super common that people do it. People may try to do it a lot and do it badly the way that people do most crimes. Right. Or even just there's a forbidden spell that gives the person a semblance of consciousness and an ability to react uh, to programming and appear to be alive as long as they aren't uh, people with free will who are being enslaved, but rather, you know, you're, so it's not really uncle Steve. It's just a, 
remarkable AI simulation of Uncle Steve, I, I think that probably uh, fits the, the sort of uh, overall premise rather than having a, a chunk of the premise that overpowers the rest of it kept around because you just liked uncle steve and so you'd like oh i miss uncle steve so much well ant units you can you can sit and talk to uncle steve's mort and oh, we paid right. for that's the spell point. right um and that's going to be a whole different you know sort of society as well if the morts are just thought of as economic units and nothing yeah, more so that'd have to be like a, a super taboo that yeah. uh that, that basically that that violates uh, well actually it angers un uncle steve yeah. <laughs> who is accessible in another realm and yeah. so the punishment for that is not the uh, temporal authorities. It's that uh, Uncle Steve will come and haunt you. So it's it's terrible, disastrous luck to mm -hmm. uh, to do that to a loved one so that, you know, it's a thing that you would only commit with someone you don't uh, care about. And even then, you know, probably most of the expense of casting this spell in order to have your parliamentarian who will still vote for you is to protect yourself from the angry ghost of that parliamentarian right. who obviously would be preferring to vote uh, against the trade proposal rather than for it. That will, that, mm -hmm. if, if you violate a ghost trade policy, that really angers them. Yeah, there's three things that ghosts don't like. They don't like uh, unfinished uh, romantic affairs. They don't like being murdered and they hate voting against their trade preferences. They hate that. Right. Um, so that's the sort of thing that, you know, we could easily continue to extrapolate into a, a giant 100,000 word source book. Uh, but uh, we don't have 100,000 uh, words to write here in the podcast. And so I think it's time to head into yet another uh, segment after this exciting commercial. And that other segment might itself have something to do with words. Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666. He discovered the way that alchemical truths That sounds can be fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The smell of used books and the carefully hidden receipts tell us if we once more ventured to the majesty that is Ken's bookshelf. And Ken, quite unbelievably, 
Uh, you went to Powell's in beautiful Portland a second time in the same year, yet they still had books for you there. They still did. They. I think what happened is when you and I went, and remember, my hall there was respectable, but it was nothing to write home about. Uh, you know, all the books would, would fit in one bag, for example. That's, you know, that's, that, that was a little weak of Powell's. And I think that they got together at Powell's headquarters and they said, well, we can't let that happen. And they just exerted their little Powell's fingers and really stepped up and, and stocked the shelves. And I managed to get a big, uh, a, a giant box of, of Powell's books shipped to me, uh, as a result of their, of their bringing it. They're, the, Books that we've, we're going to list. This is a sampling, only a sampling of the books that I brought back from Powell's. I brought, you know, at least twice this many. Uh, so just keep that in mind for every book I'm telling you about. There is another book that is either relatively boring <laughs> or just didn't fit in the podcast. Yeah, so, so keep that in mind. Survey of the uh, mills of uh, Dorset has been uh, left off this list. It has been left out because... Uh, what I'm going to do with the Mills of Dorset is none of your business. So let's take our uh, utility knife and carefully cut open the packing tape and pull out a book. And the first one is Dracula by Bram Stoker. You would think that Ken, of course, would already have this, but this version is annotated by Mort Castle. There have been a number of annotated Draculas. Uh, what distinguishes the Mort Castle annotations? Uh, the thing that makes the Mort Castle, and I, as you uh, allude to, I have a number of annotated Draculas. I have Wolf. I have uh, Klinger, obviously. I have Leatherdale. The Norton Critical Dracula is slightly annotated. Uh, lightly annotated, I should say. But this annotation is by a guy who is a horror writer professionally and is also a professional writer of books on writing. And Mort Castle has annotated Dracula not to explain to us what a Zahordok is or a Baruch Landau, but to say, here is when Stoker puts in a character beat. Here is when Stoker does this with the plot. And he's annotating it as an example of, hey, guess what? As a really good novel, which it is. <laughs> and so, you know, as you're going through the annotations, you're like, I mean, a lot of the observations are a little facile, but it's an instruction book, right? It's teaching someone by reading to think about story as a collection of elements that are built up. And whenever you start thinking about things like that, you're going to start making a lot of facile points. Like here in the opening, we are establishing menace. It's like, okay, yeah, I got that. But someone didn't get right. that. And it, it's facile if, if you uh, know it already. Right. It's it's the basics if you uh, haven't. So this is basically the Dracula's hit points version of yeah. Dracula annotated. Right. With, without the sort of, you know, larger theoretical insight that you bring to it. But it's the sort of, you know... Good, old-fashioned, mainstream American writing instruction with Dracula as its casebook. And that is terrific because Dracula is a, a complex novel in a lot of ways, and it's a really well-structured novel. But it's also a novel that can be sort of hard to tease the structure out of if you don't know how to tease structures out of things. Which almost no one does. Yeah, it, it, it turns out. But, I mean, this is not the world's greatest Dracula, and it's probably not even the world's greatest possible literary annotation of Dracula, but it is a good one, and it does what it says on the tin. And just for that alone, I thought that it was worth uh, adding to my, uh, by now, bookshelf of annotated Draculas. Uh, the next one wins the award for longest subtitle. So brace yourselves, folks. This is Perfect Spy. The Incredible Double Life of Pham Swan An, Time Magazine Reporter, and Vietnamese Communist Agent. And this is written by Larry Berman. Uh, what is left to tell us about the premise of that book, once we've read the subtitle? Well, uh, 
part of the uh, thing that happened was that uh, Fam Juan An, and I don't want to mitigate his god-awfulness of being a uh, communist spy, um, although, again, uh, I- I'm sure that everyone else at Time Magazine was like, oh, he was paid. We were undermining the war effort for free. Um, <laughs> but after uh, the uh, North Vietnamese marched in and took over South Vietnam, guess what they did to all the really dedicated Viet Cong cadres? That's right. They tossed them in re-education camps. Uh, so, um, Pham Juan An was, uh, after he got his People's Army Force Hero Award, he was then tossed into a re-education camp to think it over. Right. And, well, that's, that's <laughs> what you want to do with all of your, uh, people who you've uh, trained to be capable of destabilizing regimes is once you're the regime, <laughs> you, you want to repurpose them. Yeah. He sent his wife and children to America, um, uh, because he <laughs> had perhaps one or two hints as to what might happen, uh, when the communists took Saigon. Um, uh, but then he, uh, wound up bringing his family back to, uh, Saigon after he sort of got out of prison and he thought that, you know, that was a, a pretty stupid thing because it gave the regime like way more power over him. And so he's sort of, you know, is one of these guys that is a, is a, um, ex-spy who gets to sort of dictate his own history. And that happens every now and again. Usually it happens with CIA heads, but it happens, you know, a lot more than you'd think with, with our enemy spies. And they get to say, well, sure. I spied on you guys, but no hard feelings. Gosh, darn. I really like McDonald's or whatever. And for some reason we buy this nonsense, but uh, obviously what it is, is going to be a really useful document for fall of Delta green. And it's going to also, I hope, open a little bit of a door into Vietnamese intelligence right. at the time, if not now. And Fall of Delta Green, for those who do not listen to every episode, is the upcoming gumshoe adaptation of uh, the Delta Green setting that focuses uh, on the 1960s. Right. And this is going to be sort of the high point of, of, of his activities. One of the things that he did, and what's kind of interesting, is that he became the go-to guy for all American newsmen, right? He was the guy who could get anything done and he could introduce you to people. He had contacts all up and down the South Vietnamese government and he knew people in the field. He could get you an interview with Viet Cong guys if you asked right. And so, <laughs> and, and so what happened is swung that. you don't have to have been a horrible, unpatriotic person to go into Vietnam and come out and have written basically as we say in in Marxism, objectively pro-communist news reporting, all you had to be done was be guided by this guy's sources. Because again, he's not sending you to the sources that are going to say, oh yeah, the Americans are going to win. Oh yeah, the government is fine. He sends you to the other sources because he has a larger agenda. And it's it's sort of a um, one-stop shop, if you want to read it that way, of journalistic interest capture, where, well, we were going to get both sides of the story, but one side is nicer and and buys lunch, and the other side is is nasty and lives across he town. Was willing to talk to us before deadline, right? Yeah, or you know doesn't have a a good um uh, outreach program like communism does, um, and that's a whole different topic, I guess, for a different podcast, but or a different episode anyway. But the uh, but that sort of notion of how one guy can basically act to transform an entire you know. Everything written on the topic after a certain point went through this guy or was a reaction to things that went through this guy. This guy was, you know, he was he was probably a million times more valuable to the Vietnamese uh, communists by redirecting the American press than any number of guys out there redirecting American bombers would have been. Uh, still on the Cold War tip, we move to The Man Who Was M, The Life of Maxwell Knight by Anthony Masters. 
Yeah, Maxwell Knight is uh, one of the people that people are called um, M. The other one is probably John Godfrey, who is the director of naval intelligence uh, when Fleming worked for naval intelligence. And so he sort of built up this pair of them. Um, M himself, or Maxwell Knight, rather, himself, was a much wilder character than M in the novels, right? M in the novels is a is a lot closer to uh, John Godfrey than he is to Maxwell Knight. Maxwell right. he, Knight he's keeps, the voice the voice of state authority because right, exactly with with hidden banked fires, but nothing. You know, he does not, for example, keep a menagerie of exotic animals. He does not hang out with Aleister Crowley. He does not flirt with fascism. Again, that was all, all a distraction from the premise. <laughs> exactly, it's all you know. Well. We'd like to use this character, but it will confuse the reader. Yeah. So, <laughs> we, you're not allowed to have a good guy who's more eccentric than Blofeld. That's just how the Bond franchise has to work. <laughs> exactly. That's a, that's a different uh, spy genre. But uh, anyhow, Knight uh, began as sort of a British fascist party member. He was that party's intelligence director. He was then recruited by MI5, who is in charge of counterterrorism, who then used him to run agents against the communists, because that's what he wanted to do already, and then eventually had him run agents against the other fascists, and then against his own people, because that's how you flip an agent. And he was so good at it that he became the head of the part of MI5 that ran agents into extremist groups on both sides, right? He became sort of the master asset handler director guy um, of all of those people. And so he doesn't send James Bond out to kill people. What he does is he sends people out to pretend to be communists or fascists to work into it. Uh, one of the things that Maxwell Knight is fond of is women. He likes women in his private life, but he also felt that there was no reason to ignore their potential as intelligence agents, that they were just as uh, smart as, as men. They were certainly smarter at fooling men uh, than men, and they would be really good uh, because they'd be unexpected as infiltrators. And so he ran a lot of female agents in a time when that was still sort of looked on as, as weird or, um, uh, or un unorthodox. And of course, everything he did was weird and unorthodox. So this was one of the ones that has sort of been proven out by history in the way that keeping baboons and hanging out with Aleister Crowley has not. So uh, next on our list, we come to, this may be a hallucination, but I, I think that maybe you saw this at Powell's a lot when I was there with you and it, it was, too expensive, but this time it seems to have leapt finally into your hand. The Third Horseman, Climate Change and the Great Famine of the 14th Century by William Rosen. You may have seen me uh, put down uh, Brian Fagan's uh, The Little Ice Age, which is a book on the same topic, probably because I already owned it, which I did. Um, but this is a new book on the Great Famine and the beginning of The Little Ice Age, uh, and it's by William Rosen, who has sort of been moving into the space left by the uh, uh, evanescence of, of William McNeil, the great historian of um, uh, sort of grand systems history. And so he wrote a book about Justinian's plague, and now he's written a book about uh, the Great Famine. And that is a crucially understudied thing about the medieval period. And it is only fairly recently, although more uh, less recently than you would think, that people started ascribing the famine to a large-scale climate change as opposed to just, well, famines happen. And uh, I believe that I found out about it in a book by uh, Emmanuel Leroy Ladury of The History of the Climate of the Last Millennium, which came out in 1967. And then there was another book that came, I think, in 1980 by a guy named Lamb, which was about climate history. And between those two books, I've sort of been interested in the 
you know, the sort of wide sweeping shifts in climate and how it has affected history going back a long way. So what's nice is that when you get another historian who's doing it in this era where people are paying a lot of attention to wide sweeping shifts in climate, that you have a lot more data and people have drilled down a lot more. And so this is sort of the opening gun of, of the, of the little ice age uh, being covered by uh, a, a new historian who's shown an interest in the topic in general. Uh, the thing about this book though, is that having bought it, I checked the bibliography and it does not mention either lamb or lodgery. So either the topic is so mature that there's no reason to go back to those researchers, which I doubt, or Rosen is engaged in a slightly superficial examination of the, of the issue. So as far as what it is, I'm sure it's a perfectly adequate history of the great famine, but I don't know how deep Rosen has gone uh, drilling into the historical research. Uh, one segment we'll have to do one day is the uh, Ken's uh, index check. Because uh, I've seen you do this before where you will look at a book and you will uh, check out its bibliography or index, I guess mostly bibliography, and check to see if a particular uh, source is listed. And if not, it, you will then smell a rat. And so it'll be interesting to go through and see if we can find a a list of those different things in different areas. But uh, uh, for the moment, uh, let's move on to The Nation's Master Forgers Tells About the Hot Check Racket by James S. Jennings. My my wife, my lovely wife, is interested in crime of all sorts, not merely the husband-murdering se- subset of crime. Well, you got to branch out. Well, you know, it's important to maintain plausibility when the FBI is profiling you. Um, and so a lot of the things that she collects are books about the sorts of crime that don't really happen a lot. So um, you you get uh, things like uh, she, she has uh, old books by old con artists who will talk about the best way to do this or that or the other thing. So this is sort of a gift for her. And it's about check kiting, passing bad checks. And of course, it's written in 1973 by a guy who was arrested in 1963 for passing bad checks. So this is a, this is pretty historical uh, check kiting technique. This is a historical do- document. It is not the way to pass bad checks now, although it might make a fun research project to take the advice in this book and see how many bad checks you can pass in this age of um, uh, computer read this and that. But what it is, yeah. is and it's then what, we get picked up, say, this is a research project, this is a research project. Here's and my I grant. I learned all about it on the uh, uh, one shot podcast. That's right. I learned all about it from the great one shot podcast. Ask for it by name, specifically. <laughs> and here, I've got permission signed by James D'Amato on this check. <laughs> um, but, but but again, it's it, looking into that sort of criminal underbelly of the 1960s and 1950s, it's it's going into a different world. There was a when I wrote my little essay on the history of dice for the bones, I one of the books I found was a big book on how to cheat at dice by a by a big time dice sharper. A lot of that advice is still good, except so much of it is social engineering, right? Find the crap party that's going on in the in the convention of salesmen you're at. Yeah. It's like I don't think any of those things still happen. Yeah. Go past the room where they're torturing their friends with the electric carpet. That's not the room you <laughs> That's want. That's not the room you want. <laughs> Next door. And so, and so this sort of, um, the crime in the 1960s and 1950s, while still being criminal, has a different flavor. And it's not, you can't necessarily just go back and say, well, I've, I've seen New Jack City. I'm pretty sure I know how crime works. David you- Runyon stylized things less than you would think he did looking at things written by Damon Runyon. It, but yeah, because you look at things not written by D- Damon Runyon and you're like, wow, that, they actually did that sort of thing. I mean, I mean, the prose wasn't as, as good, but 
yeah, it, it's a it's a weird world when you start looking at even just, you know, 30, 40 years ago, times when I was alive, for God's sake, this guy was was writing this book and going around to uh, area area savings and loans back when those were a thing and, and giving lectures on on check security. It's just a it, it's it. I'm I'm very fascinated by this sort of um, cyberpunk avant la lettre type stuff, which is it, it just endlessly interesting to hopefully to others, but certainly to me. Well, I think you're going to get a pretty big credit card bill from Powell's. So we'd better have a commercial to help finance your book purchases and then come back to talk about more of them. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly. Or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. And we're back to talk about the next item in the... Uh, this is the already the cream of the box, not not the whole box. No, no. Uh, here we have New York City Folklore by B.A. Botkin. Is this also Runyon-esque? Uh, uh, big parts of it are Runyon-esque. Runyon, I think, is even name-checked in the um, uh, in the book. It's copyright 1956. B.A. Botkin was one of the preeminent, one of the first real folklorists to work in America. And he did a whole bunch of... Uh, folklore books and he has things like southern folklore and western folklore and appalachian folklore and new england folklore and railroad folklore and all that is fine okay i I buy all this stuff and new york city folklore and suddenly you're like what new york city the fascinating conurbation of sophisticated urban folk and it's like well of course they have folklore they have urban legends before they were called that they have their Gather own Gather around children and let me tell you the story of pizza rat <laughs> the story of pizza rat <laughs> He started a rat and became a star. The, the man who starved to death while explaining what train to take to the restaurant. That kind of thing. And and so there's a lot of, of these sort of, of things. A lot of them come out, of course, of the New York that is the old New York pre, say, 1860, 1880, when New York was still just a big Dutch and English town and did not have a huge number of of Italian and Irish and uh, uh, Jewish immigrants that really added a huge amount of the flavor that when we think of the stereotypical New Yorker, we are not thinking at all of 
the New Yorker that a lot of this folklore comes out of the Washington right. so Irving. This is even before the Gangs of New York era. Yeah, a lot of it goes back that far. Then some of it is that Gangs of New York era, and then some of it is going to be stuff that he collected in the immediate post-war and in the 30s during the Depression when he was out doing all of his uh, folklore photography. And so what it winds up being is a super great document in depth of the, you know, imagined life of the city of New York. And I really wish that B.A. Botkin had gotten off his um, uh, chair and gone and done one for Chicago because there's a ton of great stuff in here. And New York... Believe me, uh, Chicago is the greatest city in the world, but New York has its own share of total weird goings on. And one of these days, maybe we'll do a segment on uh, the Colt murder, which is one of my favorite things in uh, New York City history. But if you're ever doing a book set in New York before 1950 or ideally before 1900, something like this is going to be a fundamental research uh, tool because you're going to want to have all the weird stories, even if they don't, you know, appear in your book or, you know, your book is not recreating one, they're, they're going to inform the way that your characters should think about their, about their city. And I think that that's, you know, that's sort of what we read folklore for as grownups anyway. And as a game designer, I read it for even better reasons. And this is a relatively new or newly reprinted book, or is this nope, a, this is a, the a old, old 1956 find. one from the uniform uh, editions with the terrible, terrible font and the cover uh, of lots of, um, uh, it's not a terrible font. It's a perfectly fine font. I shouldn't be mean. And the and the sort back of back when cr- fonts were typefaces, right? Back when they were typefaces, and the the sort of uh, many little crayon illustrations of things going on on the cover. So it's very busy and weird looking by our by our modern aesthetic. But it was you know Random House published just a whole whack of these in uniform editions, and this is the New York City one. Moving from folklore to myth, we have Merlin and the discovery of Avalon in the new world. So this is going to be a uh, mythic indeed by Graham Phillips, super mythic. And I only wish you could see how tiny the margins on the back cover are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, new listeners will, uh, will note that uh, this is uh, one of Ken's great tests for the craziness of the contents of the book is that the smaller, the margins, the bigger, the craziness. So what is the big craziness here? Well, this is multi big craziness, but Graham Phillips is one of those guys who, um, he is, and I don't want this to sound mean, Graham Phillips is super great at finding everyone else's crazy theory and building a unified or mostly unified crazy theory of his own out of them. He doesn't do a ton of original research, but what he does do is sort of drill a little deeper than the standard secrets of the unknown guys, and he puts them together. He used to have a habit at the end of each chapter of sort of saying, what have we learned from this chapter? And he would sort of lay out his conclusions Bam, bam, bam. And it was really a, a very, you know, helpful thing to me, the, the busy uh, elliptonist, to yeah. sort of be able to get Graham Phillips' summary of his summary of other people's work. Go to the super concentrated version. Exactly. Uh, he stopped doing that, I think, because it uh, slows down the prose, which it does. Yes. Um, I'm but, sure an editor told him to knock it off. Yes, but in this particular lovely edition, and the, the books are, are all very nice. Uh, uh, and he's, you know, he's a busy guy. He's looking up the conspiracy about the Virgin Mary or Atlantis or the magic comet that turned everyone evil or just so many things. He's such a busy guy. Uh, but this one, he's figured out that Merlin was a real dude. He's figured out that Merlin went to America, that that's where Avalon is, that there's a secret site in North America that was identified as Merlin's graveyard by uh, English settlers in America who were bored. And that William Shakespeare, of course, encoded that location in his plays. And that... (laughs) 
<laughs> in any other author, that would be four books, but not Graham Phillips because he is a busy guy and he's got to go look about, you know, the curse of King Tut being caused by the devil or something. He's a, he can't be wasting everyone's valuable time with four books on a topic like this. So, so he's so, the Ben and Jerry's ice cream of elliptony. You can't just have one extra ingredient that adds texture. You've got to have four. I mean, the thing about uh, Graham Phillips and why I keep buying his books is because he, he believes in value for money, right? <laughs> And, and I, you know, it sounds silly, but the thing is, so many people will just write another book about Renla Chateau and all they will do is just take everyone else's Renla Chateau or not even everyone else, just two or three guys book about Renla Chateau, sort of cycle it around, put in the same pictures. There you go. Renla Chateau. Uh, and if you've got two of the books, you've got all the books on Renla Chateau. No one has done anything new, but. Our boy, Graham Phillips. Adding new material to the canon. If he's going to do a Renle Chateau book, he is going to tie it in with Roland, and he's going to tie it in with uh, Moses, and he's going to tie it in with something, and it's going to be, you know, a bygum new... It, it may be none of the individual str strands are new, but that is going to be a new thread that he has stretched from place to place, and, you know, God love him. He's he's not cheaping out. The, the none of these books are um uh, are are puffed with air or other fillers. This is a hundred percent uh beef, as far as I'm concerned, and uh, good for him. Speaking of the uh, great encoder of Merlin mysteries into his plays, we have National Portrait Gallery Insights: Shakespeare and His Contemporaries by Charles Nichol. And the National Portrait Gallery in Great Britain, which is a great uh, gallery by itself put together a uh, collection of books where they would take pictures from their museum and they would have them put together and then have an author sort of write a little explanation of what all the pictures were. And they had a whole series of this. And this is the one that is by the great, the legendary Charles Nicole, who have, as longtime listeners will recall, is the author of the single greatest role-playing game book that is not a role-playing game book, The Reckoning, The Murder of Christopher Marlowe. And who better to uh, sort of provide annotations for a bunch of portraits. And what he has done is his thesis in this book is that Shakespeare is not a lone genius. He is part of a ongoing uh, culture. He is part of a society. There are other playwrights. There are other figures around Shakespeare. And so using Shakespeare as sort of the centerpiece, it gives Nicole an excuse to write little potted biographies of everyone that he could find in the National Portrait Gallery that was relevant. And it's obviously going to be somewhat... Uh, skewed towards people who could have their portraits painted. So not a lot of poor people in uh, this book. But in terms of, you know, sort of your, who are your players? If, if you're running an Elizabethan game, picking this book up and using it as your, you know, sort of, you see this guy, that's not a bad thing to do. And you can, you know, you look at a portrait of someone, you look at a portrait of Sam, of uh, Ben Johnson, for example, you get a sense of who he is in a way that just reading about Ben Johnson is not going to give you. And I think that that's one of the values of, of portraits in the first place. And I suspect it's why the national portrait gallery put this book together in the second place, but it's pretty cheap and easily findable because they have super overestimated the allure of national portrait gallery books, I guess. And, uh, Charles Nichol is, is, is always worth reading, even when he's having to sort of restrain his speculation and give you relatively straightforward, uh, conventionally accepted versions of the history. Next up, we have mutants and mystics. Science Fiction, Superhero Comics, and the Paranormal by Jeffrey J. Creepall. And Jeffrey J. Creepall is a, a believer in uh, the mystic. He has been inhabited at one point by the goddess Kali, apparently. Uh, and he's had any number of other experiences of, of a magical sort. 
Uh, he teaches comparative religion. Um, no, he's a philosophy and religious thought at Rice University. So he's like a genuine academic, but he's also a genuine believer. And this book purports to explain that our superhero stories and to a lesser extent, our science fiction. Oh, wait, wait, let me guess. They prepare us for the coming mystic awakening. No, oh. uh, they are the coming mystic awakening. And once we understand that these are the new myths, that these are the stories that we need to read, we will have the mystic awakening. And he, uh, sort of, and I hesitate to say demonstrates, but he demonstrates this <laughs> by going to creators of various seminal works of science fiction and superhero comics, who in the 50s and 60s were often the same people, like Eando Binder, uh, Otto Binder, and um, uh, Alfred Bester and people like that. And it turns out a surprising number of them had some sort of weird uh, mystical experience or other. And he says, okay, Roy Thomas had a crazy mystical experience. Uh Alan Moore is a practicing magician, or used to be. Grant Morrison, same story. Um, Barry Windsor Smith and Philip K. Dick had almost identical mystical experiences about eight months apart, which is all by itself the kind of information that I think a, a growing boy needs. And uh, so he just says, obviously what happened is these powerful mystical experiences become channeled into their art in the way that mystical experiences are always channeled into art. We don't really question that in the case of religious art. We don't say, well, we just figure that um, he was going through the motions, didn't really believe in this Virgin Mary nonsense. Um, so why not say it about the Green Lantern Corps? Um, and when you put it that way, it almost becomes a rational question. And sadly, he does an awful lot of uh, picking and choosing, right? So he'll say, well, Richard Shaver it was just a crazy person. And it's like, well, why is his mystical experience of being kidnapped by stunted dwarf aliens from the Hollow Earth weirder than Barry Windsor Smith's mystical experience of being talked to by a pink light. Those are both weird. And well, Shaver the first was, one is, is uh, verifiably false. Perhaps. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. Well, I guess. Well, let's, let's <laughs> sure. Once you start getting there, but <laughs> that, again, if that's, if that's your bright line, there's, there are people in this book that are not going to make uh, the cut either. So he's picking and choosing in his own way, but, Again, he's a real academic. It's from the University of Chicago Press, which is a super real press. So it's a gorgeous book. Um, and as long as you don't buy any of it, it, I think, provides sort of an interesting substrate if you're looking at superheroes or uh, the modern mythologies, which overlap superheroes in Star Wars, because you're going to do a game that way or because you just want to, you know, sort of sit back and think about the the myth of the hero and, and whether or not Hercules and Superman are the same thing, which a lot of uh, academic historians of, of uh, culture do. And I, I think that by and large, this, this adds a lot of data, but practically no analysis to the topic is what I want to say. Uh, next up, we go to American politics and before the storm, Barry Goldwater and the unmaking of the American consensus by Rick Perlstein. I assume you haven't read this in its entirety, but what uh, does its thesis appear to be? The thesis is that Barry Goldwater is the first great 60s radical, right? That until Barry Goldwater, everyone has agreed that the New Deal is fine, that we're going to move forward in Fordist, uh, Rooseveltist corporatism forever and ever, amen, and we're going to slowly work to build socialism. And Barry Goldwater comes along and says, none of that is right. And he is... 
having just as radical an impact on American politics as Allen uh, Ginsberg has on poetry, as the, the New Left has on the protest movement, as... When things fly away from the center, they fly in both directions. They fly in both directions. Or all directions, in and, fact. And, and so, looked at, you know, just in terms of their actual footprint on the ground, Barry Goldwater is far more influential than Abby Hoffman. But historians of the 60s put one radical in one box and the other radical in another box. And again, Perlstein is a man of the left, uh, but he is also a conscientious historian. So it's a good history. It's a great sort of how did we get this way type book by someone who is not entirely sure he likes all the ways that we got, which usually makes for more interesting questions in the source of the, in the course of the book. And it'll be a great uh, foundational document for the first half of uh, uh, Fall of Delta Green. And Rick Perlstein has a sequel to it called Nixon Land about the rise and fall of Nixon that will make a great second half. So Rick Perlstein will be uh, the hidden skeleton, I think, of the history section of Fall of Delta Green in a lot of ways. And I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of his writing anyway, and I was just glad to find his Barry Goldwater book at Powell's for a affordable price. Uh, and finally, something that perhaps uh, will provide fodder for future uh, cartography huts, uh, perhaps the most difficult of our uh, huts to find subjects for. Uh, this is Maps of Paradise by Alessandro Scoffi. Yeah, this is a big, uh, pretty coffee table book, and it is full of um, lovely maps. And they are lovely maps of paradise, of how to find heaven, right? And so there are, there are a number of medieval maps that, that locate the Garden of Eden. They locate uh, heaven. They locate various sorts of places. So are these locating them specifically on known places on the, on the globe, or are these maps of what it would have looked like wherever it happened to have been? A lot of them are locating them at specific places of the globe or are locating the sort of, you know, here's Jerusalem at the center of the world, and what does that mean uh, type questions. And then there's also maps of the, you know, celestial spheres, and here's how, you know, here's where, here's the architecture of heaven, if not necessarily the geography of heaven. Uh, there are, you know, other maps of the world don't necessarily locate Eden, but they make sure to draw it in the corner so that you know that it's a proper Bible map and not one of those filthy pagan maps. Uh, and so one of the interesting sort of studies of the book is that the Garden of Eden sort of moves just a little bit as things get just a little more historical. So it moves from the absolute center of the world to, well, we're all pretty sure the Garden of Eden was in Mesopotamia, so let's put it there. And so you can sort of see this beginning of the uh, Renaissance uh, notion of we can approach classical learning and analyze it ourselves. We're worthy of that in these beginnings of these of these maps. So it's sort of a intellectual history as well as being a big, pretty book of big, pretty maps about big, pretty paradise. So that uh, gives us a nice paw through the, uh, the highlights of your book box. And uh, I guess probably our next uh, bookshelf segment will be uh, post-Dragon Meat when we hit... Uh, probably foils and uh, treadwells in London again. So until then, uh, everyone enjoy the vicarious pleasure of having heard about these books or uh, check out the comments to the uh, show notes for this episode in which you will find a list of the titles with all of the spellings of the authors and so forth. And on that note, we can declare victory on yet another podcast.
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Heart Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Reinforce Ken's groaning shelves by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. If there's Ken and Robin themed merch you'd like to see as part of our upcoming Patreon campaign, leave a comment on the blog post for this episode. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. Thank you.